welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I am Mahima Kapoor researcher and assistant editor at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Evam Nitya Nisandhan Sansan, New Delhi. Welcome you all to the Impri hashtag Web Policy Talk. The COVID-19 pandemic has inflicted heavy economic costs across the world, with countries reeling under recession. Certain structural reforms, such as the National Monetization Pipeline, National Infrastructure Pipeline, PM Gati Shakti. production linked incentive schemes pm garib kalyan yojana package atmanirbhar bharat among others have helped mitigate the effects to evaluate the way forward for long term economic expansion we have gathered for a talk under the series the state of the economy #econdialogue with dr renu kohli on india growth prospects after covid This deliberation is being organized by the Impri Center for the Study of Finance and Economics. I feel honored to introduce the chair, Professor N R Bhanumurthy. Sir is the Vice Chancellor at Dr B R Ambedkar School of Economics, University Bengaluru. He has worked as a macroeconomist at UNSCAP Bangkok and UNDP Regional Center for Asia Pacific Region Colombo. He has also worked as a consultant to ILO, UNDP, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank. Sir has published extensively in various economics and finance journals. His books include "Financial Access in the Post-Reform India," "Economic Growth, Employment, and Poverty: A Study of Manufacturing, Construction, and Tertiary Sectors in India," "Implementing Moderate Consensus in the Asia-Pacific Region." achieving coherence and consistency among others welcome sir i feel privileged to introduce the speaker dr renu kohli mam is an economist specializing in indian macroeconomic and financial sector issues on which she researches consults and contributes regular opens a former staff member of the rbi and imf Her research areas include capital account liberalization, exchange rate management, monetary policy, financial sector reforms, and international economic policy coordination. She has published in refereed journals such as the Review of Development Economics, Journal of Development Studies, Journal of Asian Economics, and has authored India's experience with capital account liberalization. She also serves as independent director, NCML Finance Private Limited, and member CII Economic Affairs Council. Welcome, ma'am. We are fortunate to have Dr. J. Dennis Rajakumar, Dr. Radhika Pandey, and Mr. T. K. Arun as the discussants for the session. Dr. Rajakumar is the director, Economic and Political Weekly Research Foundation, Mumbai. Welcome, sir. Dr Pandey is a senior fellow 
National Institute of Public Finance and Policy, New Delhi. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. And Mr. Arun is the consultant editor of the Economic Times, New Delhi. Welcome, sir. Now I invite Professor Bhanumurthy to take the proceedings further, and we look forward to learning from our esteemed gathering. Thank you. Thank you, Mahima. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear. So first of all, let me thank uh, Impri for uh, inviting me to chair this session on um, uh, India's growth prospects after COVID. And uh, especially, I'm doubly thankful for you for uh, asking me to chair this session, especially when uh, Renu Kohli is speaking. Renu has been one of the um, you know, important commentator on Indian economy. In fact, um, <clears throat> her works on um, uh, capital flows even today has been a Bible for many of us. And uh, it has been uh, included in many of the curriculum in leading institutions. And we still read that book. And uh, I must thank Renu for that work. And I do hope that we'll have a uh, second sequence of that um, uh, book now that it's 15 years now and you have already written that you know we have to really relook at uh, a Tarapur committee I think maybe you also need to relook at that book uh, so that uh, we will be having some updates on the capital flows and uh, it's very important for us at the moment and uh, I'm also thankful for uh, because um, all the discussions are somewhere or other they're my colleagues and they were my acquaintances, and especially people like T.K. Arun. You know, I've been reading his work for almost 20 years now and continue to read. And uh, Dennis, again, you know, he's heading very important institution, uh, EPW Research Foundation. If the youngsters who are here, I think uh, EPW Research Foundation's contributions to economic research, I think needs to be really highlighted here. And Radhika, she's my colleague from NIPFP. And again, she has been very actively uh, participating in the debates on Indian economy. So, so more than all these things, I think I'm more happy with the topic. Uh, although we are uh, facing the third wave, now we started talking about uh, post-COVID economic growth prospects. So that means we seem to be seeing the end of this pandemic. And uh, that's a good news. And uh, although we have a budget coming in the next 10 days, um, unfortunately, we all keep talking about a very short-term perspective of Indian economy. So I guess uh, Renu is going to take a little longish perspective on Indian economy. And uh, we completely forgot about the issues related to India's potential growth, or um, what is the medium-term policy challenges, and what needs to be done really to improve the potential growth of this country. Um, like many have, have been writing that uh, potential growth must have come down drastically in the recent period. So I hope uh, Renu will take a very broad perspective and, um, and uh, what needs to be done if you really want to improve um, you know, potential growth of this country and what are the pal macro pal policy challenges that we need to uh, have um, for uh, increasing the potential. And uh, of course, there are a lot of reforms that have already happened. Uh, maybe um, we need to see how that's going to be implemented. But having said that, I'm extremely happy that um, uh, this uh, session is going to happen now. 
and keenly waiting for listening to Dr. Enikohi. Thank you so much. So over to Renu. Thank you for your very uh, generous uh, introduction, Bhanu. And uh, I'm not certain whether I deserve all of it. And pleased to meet uh, everybody. And uh, let me start with uh, thanking uh, the uh, IMPRI, the acronym is easier to speak out, and uh, for this opportunity, because uh, as Bhanu pointed out, everybody is very curious to know what's going to happen and what are the prospects over the medium term, because everybody knows that the recovery abounds back from, from, from a very deep contraction uh, as we had last year. It's fairly straightforward and therefore it's very hard to see beyond that. Um, without wasting more time, I'm going to start sharing my screen. And uh, I don't have a very long presentation, but I thought it would be nice to anchor uh, some of the points and uh, then I will expand upon them. And um, Arjun, please feel free to just remind me in case I overshoot. Sure. Okay. So with that, uh, let me begin. Um, I cannot, uh, is, uh, can everybody see it? Not no. yet. Not yet. No? Is, is, is the screen visible to everyone? Sorry, uh, is the screen not visible? No. Okay. Now? Yes. Yep. I think I did so press share. Yes, it's working. Yeah, okay. So um, let me start with this current uh, optimism as uh, Bhanu point noted that uh, the third wave is continuing and uh, yet uh, everybody's talking about uh, recovery. And that's correct, uh, absolutely true because we did see signs of a bounce back from the last quarter onwards. And uh, we can see the recovery signs all over the world and somehow the arrival of Omicron has not dented enthusiasm or, or, or prospects, and neither has it actually derailed uh, or sort of, you know, uh, prevented economic policies all over the world, actually, from beginning to uh, move towards normality. And so in, in that sense, there is a decoupling uh, of the pandemic with the uh, policies. So coming back to India, there is a certain, uh, there is actually a great deal of uh, optimism about the post-COVID recovery and uh, the medium-term growth prospects. And one of the, uh, a, key, a key measure of this is that uh, while the advance estimates and most analysts peg the recovery in FY22 from anything, you know, the range between eight point eight and a half to about nine point five, some even 9.7. And now recently there have been some downgrades uh, for the last uh, remaining quarter on account of uh, damages caused by Omicron. But everybody has that. And uh, beyond that for FY23, the common projections for growth are anything, the consensus, is, consensus lies between seven to 7.6%. 7 
and most uh, most uh, analysts spec the medium term growth for uh, expectations around the range of in the 7% region now uh, so the question is uh, whether these are realistic uh, estimates uh, over the medium term prospects or do we have reasons to be cautious about uh, india's medium term prospects um, i would uh, argue that there one needs to be a bit more cautious because uh, for two simple reasons. One is that uh, during COVID, we have seen starting from uh, its arrival in the early 2020, that the forecast errors that COVID has induced have been very large. Uh, um, most um, all over the world, globally, we found that the growth forecasts were uh, really belied by the bounce backs uh, six months uh, or eight months later. And so they were, you know, particularly gloomy to start with. So the forecast errors have been very large. Uh, second is that the COVID damages have been quite high. And then last of all, most important, it's very hard to find visibility about the nature or the strength of demand because COVID has induced many distortions in the data. And the reason for that is that uh, there is about two or three strands of demand which are coming together on reopenings all across the world and in India. Uh, there are differences in the extent of stimulation that advanced countries have uh, given and India has given, and therefore that makes a difference to the suppressed demand, demand that could not uh, take place or people couldn't spend because of the pandemic. Second is also because uh, the, the reason is that uh, demand has also been bunched towards just goods for a long time, and therefore you know there is this pent up demand for services. And last of all, we do not know exactly at least in indian case as to you know what is the true strength of demand because and that takes us to the second major factor why we should be cautious why we need why why perhaps caution is required is is on account of the pre-covid economic health that itself raised concerns before the arrival of covid and we go back to the output collapse in fy 20, that is the year 2019-20, when growth actually suddenly uh, collapsed to 4.1%, and to, to, to just about everyone's surprise, it was hugely unpredicted. Uh, why does that matter, the economic health, because and, and the output collapse in that year? Uh, I think that it matters because uh, the causes or the reasons for that collapse, sudden collapse, are largely remain undiagnosed, and uh, poorly understood, partly because of a short span of time and partly because COVID has also distracted our attention and focus from that. Uh, because uh, the reason why it is important is that if it was coming after a three, it was a third year of a slowdown and a sudden collapse, we do not know whether it was cyclical or structural and because, and the reason why if it, the drivers of that weaknesses, economic weaknesses were structural, then there is a risk that the potential growth could have been shrunk, uh, uh, could have shrunk as a result, it could have contracted. So in case if the potential has been damaged in 2019-20, then the return to a high growth, growth trajectory in the post-COVID uh, period might be difficult over the uh, medium term. It might be a very Herculean task. Uh, a short recapitulation as to what had happened actually in 2019-20. If we go back and recall, then the year actually started with very a great deal of optimism in early 19, 2019. 
for example, common predictions of growth in that year were between seven to seven and a half percent. Some even had it higher, some analysts. For example, if we look at, remember the RBI forecasts in February, 2019, that is the post first uh, monetary policy review of that year, uh, post budget, the RBI's forecast was 7.4%. And then consistently the RBI actually scaled it down to pruned it down to 5% by the end of the year. And whereas when the actual outturn came, it was 4.1%. So it was a shocker and everybody, no, no one expected it. How did the year unfold? It had unfolded with a great deal of optimism and then suddenly uh, mid-year, uh, the May or the, the May or the June uh, survey, that is before the budget, uh, because it was an election year. So uh, the RBI's uh, consumer and industrial outlook uh, survey showed a huge plunge in expectations. It was the third biggest plunge ever, counting back to, uh, to, the, to the year that the surveys began, I think 2002, and then partly they were revised and made much broader around 2005. And the previous two plunges, one was the dot-com bust, very identifiable with the economic shocks. 2001 was the dot-com bust in the tech bust all over the world. Uh, 0809 was the external, the global financial crisis. But the curious thing is that in 2019, there was uh, 1920, there was no, there is no identifiable shock. And yet the forecast error was as high as 340 basis points. So it is, it is one of those unexplained things that have remained. And it is a serious issue because, um, because unless we know exactly why did growth collapse and what are the root causes, whether structural, cyclical or whatever, we, how do we move ahead? How do we predict? And what's going to happen ahead in the medium term? What happened in the officially, if we see uh, in towards uh, when the sentiments plunged in uh, 2019, the RBI's annual report, which was published uh, for the, uh, the annual report is published with a lag in the middle, uh, in usually on the 30th of August 20, uh, of each year. And it refers to the preceding financial year. So this uh, annual report in August 2019 referred to the year 2018-19, but it raised an existential question because there was a lot of talk about the slowdown. The slowdown was uh, um, uh, occurring in the economy from 8.3% uh, peak in FY17. So, you know, growth slowed down to 6.8, 6.2, and so on. I think there were about many quarters of slowdown. The peak was really the last quarter of the uh, demonetization year or even before that. So the RBI raised an existential question saying that asking whether uh, the slowdown was a soft patch, was it a cyclical swing, uh, downswing or a structural slowdown? And at that time, the conclusion was that we need to await and all that. By next year, actually, by the time COVID had struck uh, India in March 2020, and the next annual report, which actually referred to the FI20, the output collapse year, the RBI uh, omitted, I mean, glossed over that question of the soft fat cyclical or structural, but it concluded that it was a confluence, the growth slowdown in FI20 was a confluence of a combination of uh, cyclical domestic as well as global factors. Likewise, if we see, go back to the economic survey in FY20, 
the economic survey to express confidence that growth would revive in the second half of that year. But then uh, after that, it never revisited the topic because growth actually consistently uh, denied the projections and the last quarter of FY20 actually fell below 3%, to as low as 3%. So the question then arises that if it was cyclical, we've been why did macroeconomic policies fail to reverse the downswing? Monetary and fiscal policies both had been easy, uh, in particular in that year, uh, budget of February 20, uh, February 19 had uh, actually used the escape clause under the FRBM and uh, uh, in the same way, even saying that these were the reforms, the corporate tax uh, taxes had been cut, uh, cut and therefore it was a kind of a crisis in some extreme emergency and uh, expanded. So, you know, uh, both of easy monetary as well as uh, fiscal policy should have been able to reverse that downswing. But the fact is that it happened. In FY20, all three components of demand had decelerated, private financial, cons uh, final consumption expenditure, uh, fixed assets creation, as well as exports. But it is the sharp breaking of private consumption that became the major focus of concern. And the reason for that is that the Private investment shortfall was dating back to the year uh, 2012. I mean, it never really recovered after the 11-12 slowdown. And uh, exports, uh, Indian exports have always been subject to the, the external demand swings and therefore external demand had not really been very great after the slowdown from 20, uh, in world trade from 2012 onwards. So the issue in a uh, question in everybody's minds had been that was the private co consumption slowdown temporary? Was it accentuated as the RBI 20, uh, FI20 report identified that idiosyncratic uh, events such as new emission and axle norms hurt the auto sales correct, uh, sector and uh, NBFC credit plunge that had been you know, following the triggered by the ILFS default in September 2018. So there were many speculative reasons and uh, amongst uh, these, uh, besides these also whether high in real interest rates from uh, a uh, more in extensive monetary tightening relative to inflation in the past, debt fuel growth, peaking of demand, sentiments, animal spirits, for example, had been dented by tax aggression, demonetization, the advent of reforms such as DST, IBC and RERA, the drag from that, twin balance sheet stresses, that is corporate and uh, banking sector, adverse external environment, NBFC crisis. So nothing remains settled and the issue remains unsettled until now. So therefore, what we find is that uh, we would say that the consumption uh, slowdown is preceding the COVID shock and then comes the COVID shock. The early assessment, again, it clouds of the preceding consumption because of the uh, COVID has, as I mentioned earlier, has distorted demand patterns, in particular, uh, particularly uh, supply chain problems in semiconductor chips and impact on car manufacturing, for example. It's very hard to assess that because we don't know uh, car sales will revive soon or, uh, or delayed and then or then too when the recovery happens, we, it's very hard to disentangle the two portions of demand, what is the you know, backlog of orders, et cetera. And then there is this inverse correspondence in the two-wheeler sales, where the decline indicates that there may be such structural distress in the rural segments, despite the robust growth in agriculture. 
there are also many other signals which uh, suggest that there, may, there is kind of persistent uh, uh, stress uh, in the economy and particularly in the informal economy. Uh, but uh, if we look at data, hard evidence, we could say it's possible to have a narrative of uh, signs of uh, structural weakness. For example, the national account statistics shows that the aggregate household balance sheets stress was visible. Uh, financial liabilities, that is borrowings by the households, they contracted by nearly 15% in FY20. And this contraction came atop an astounding 60.2% growth in 2017-18, uh, uh, which itself was a threefold increase over the 22% growth in FY17. So certainly there is uh, evidence that consumers are preferring to retire debt over current consumption in the year starting uh, FY20. So if this, so one question is that uh, if this consumer uh, uh, trend of consumers uh, and or households continuing to repair their balance sheets, then in that case, post growth uh, COVID revival would take a while and it is hard to predict as to how long it can take. It can take, uh, it is actually linked to income growth. The consumption is uh, hugely dependent upon that and uh, it's a, one of the biggest drivers. So in a sense, this balance sheet uh, effect upon the households and the leading to a consumption slowdown is not surprising because uh, it was preceded by a very prolonged shortfall in private investment, almost a decade uh, back. And uh, that of course, if there has been no investment in the economy, it impacts job creation, income growth, and it retards consumption. One could argue or a counter question or uh, to this would be story would be that why did consumer spending take so long to slow down? So let's refer and uh, to economic theory uh, and the role of income expectations. Basically the permanent income hypothesis also revolves around that, that uh, consumers, if there is a shock to income and income falls, consumers take a while and they are more inclined to consider that the fall in income would be temporary and they can continue to perceive that it's temporary. And uh, this uh, hypothesis owes itself to Friedman and consumer studies, uh, empirical studies have shown that the realization that the income fall shock is not temporary, but there is a permanent fall in incomes can take, can be about roughly about anything between three to five years, which is the medium term. So one could say that the future income expectations is important and perhaps uh, that accounted for the propping up of consumption that it did not, uh, it took about so long following an investment shortfall to slow down. It could also be the case that uh, borrowings uh, help sustain consumption as we saw uh, in the preceding slide, I showed how much the borrowing in the aggregate uh, household uh, borrowings had increased. 60% upon 22%. There was a sharp increase also post-monetization, which is visible in the uh, financial sector data in uh, real lending from the NBFCs. So it was always a, such an such a unbridled boom is always unsustainable. All of, there's enough empirical evidence to show us that. And it was, the party uh, was headed for a crash as it did. And uh, perhaps, you know, there may be uh, similarities between that crash in consumption borrowing, consumer borrowings, 
as happened in the case of bank credit to infrastructure that boom to bust pattern in of 2011-12. We do not know. Time will tell us. And uh, perhaps uh, when the uh, bust happened in terms of borrowings, the realization amongst household in the aggregate is the confrontation or realization that the what they were thinking that it was a temporary income shortfall is perhaps permanent. And once they confront weak future income prospects, then perhaps the plunge in sentiments uh, happened in mid-29 and that triggered cutbacks in current consumption. So if that is the case, then that's one factor to be reckoned with as far as medium-term growth prospects are concerned. A second could also be the reason uh, underlying the uh, consumption shortfall could also be the reversal in terms of trade. We all know that uh, Indian economy benefited enormously from the oil and commodity prices collapse in uh, from FI uh, from 2014-15. It also coincided with a period of very low inflation. So therefore, you know, there is a boost to real incomes from all sides, whether it's households, that is consumers, producers, and the government in terms of tax revenue. So the entire economy benefited. But that phase uh, tapered off from FY17. And then in, since then, from 17, 18 onwards, we can see that inflation, particularly core inflation, has been creeping back. It has remained stubbornly between, you know, about five and a half percent and inched closer to six percent since then despite the fact that growth has been falling since then. So, you know, that's something which tells us it's, it, it could again reflect uh, a, a shrinkage in potential output or that the, meaning that the output gap is actually much smaller than it is perceived to be. It could also be indirect tax hikes in the Indian economy since FI17, uh, we have had enormous uh, hikes in indirect taxation. GST, excise customs duties, a lot of tariffs have been raised from uh, February 2018 onwards, and that may have worsened matters, eroded uh, purchasing power and dented consumer consumption. So, you know, here we can consider perhaps the role uh, of uh, economic policies. It often happens that uh, uh, following a crisis, say like, like if we revisited the 2008-9 crisis, Following crisis, the uh, falls in output can be can persist. They can also turn permanent, and particularly the economic the role of economic pro, uh, policies then assumes a great deal of uh, significance in that context. Uh, context, and uh, so you know, econometrically also, uh, the presence of unit roots in GDP also uh, reflects that uh, shocks to output can be permanent. So the critical and relevant question to come back is that uh, for uh, come back to is if consumer demand is poised to revive ahead because that 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 is where we are centered and everything depends upon that in moving forward. We do have a, a, a stasis as far as uh, uh, investment is concerned. We also have uh, very little space in policies. I'll come back to that, but let me just examine the evidence on consumption. What is the evidence on this so far? Up till now, there is little evidence, including in the post-recovery uh, phase, the last uh, few months, particularly the last quarter, uh, where uh, consumer sales have not really been as per expectations by most companies. But hard data, that is financial sector data, tells us, shows us that real credit by banks and NBFCs has hardly move in real terms, it's pretty, it's under, it's below 1%. Uh, 
And at the macroeconomic level, the sense that we get is that both produ producers as well as consumers seem to have used the ultra loose uh, monetary policy for repairing their balance sheets. And it is well known that corporates have either swapped loans with cheaper funding from the market, that is the large firms, or they have retired their existing debt. Households, as I showed earlier, have also been doing the same. The quarterly savings data also, which is a bit uh, uh, volatile, and therefore, you know, we have to await the national account statistics in that regard, context, but it also reflects that consumers have not been spending. So the question is that that is a stopper. It's, a, it's an obstruction to the revival of private capex because simply because if businesses don't see demand, why should they spend and take risk? So that bears upon the near as well as medium term revival prospects. I think most uh, forecasters uh, do not expect private uh, capex revival and that is building up uh, an argument towards you know, greater fiscal stimulation. But final question is that uh, we do not, the least examined actually, is the damages to informal economy post-demonetization and GST did contribute to the consumption slowdown with a lag. And that raises again the question about policy mistakes or mistiming mis policies. A lot of people have been, uh, have uh, commentary has focused uh, exposed given the, uh, given the, uh, uh, the tepid uh, outcome of GST. And they have said, uh, they have argued that perhaps it was not properly timed and it should have been you know, timed at the time when the growth cycle was on the upswing rather than on the downswing. But we do not have too much of data to substantiate. And uh, you know, one of the uh, indicators, hard indicators about consumption could be could, uh, were the consumer expenditure surveys. But the status of that is we announced have the consumption expenditure that or at the household level uh, or average Indian, median Indian in 2011-12. The leaked report of course did show that there was actually a fall in um, uh, monthly private consumption expenditure in real terms. There are also some telltale signs in the labor market. For example, the number of uh, people uh, workforce engaged in agriculture has gone up according to as per the PLFS surveys. Also, we find that uh, from the CMI surveys that the reduced number of earning members per household. So these are some telltale signs, but uh, overall hard evidence, uh, which could inform economic policy is lacking. Uh, there has also been uh, less effort, I would say, official effort to uh, get this kind of information or. Uh, so uh, we, uh, that brings us to what are the post-COVID crop prospects. So essentially, we go back to where I started with the optimism and the projections. Now, the optimism, what, are the, uh, what is at the basis of these uh, forecast, optimistic forecasts of 7% and all in the medium term? Uh, one can highlight, and uh, in terms of points, which is these supply-side reforms, in the pre-COVID years, that is uh, IBC, GST, et cetera. Many say that they've already begun to yield uh, results and more will follow. And that the, that the reforms itself usually take, uh, structural reforms take about a decade, a decade to yield dividends, or at least, you know, about seven years. And so it's about time in the future, they will start uh, near term, they will start uh, accruing to the 
sovereign and to the nation. Uh, more structural forms have been uh, announced and implemented uh, during COVID. The status of these reforms, uh, yes, but you know we can we can uh, say certainly these are very positive forces, and they ought to boost consumer sentiment. Right now, because it's very early days, we do not see any substantial increase in consumer sentiments and expectations or perceptions about their future income. Uh, the RBI's uh, latest consumer expenditure survey, which dates to November 21 uh, last year, it is yet to, yet to reflect uh, any great uh, robustness uh, because they are indeed directionally, they are on the uh, upside, but, uh, but then you know, they are emerging from their post-COVID lows and the basis uh, the recovery of the expectations or sentiments is actually very, very lukewarm. Uh, on the reform side, uh, again, there is some bit of reason to be cautious because we've had uh, uh, fallback, uh, rollback of the agriculture laws. There are also signs that the labor laws and the codes that were revised and all the rules have not been notified and there is delay. And that gives rise to suspicion whether it has, these are becoming politically difficult. Um, IBC has been on the back burner for almost two years now, and increasingly banks are following other routes, including write-offs. And the latest is the bad bank seems to have hit hurdles in terms of the structure of its creation, which is uh, surprisingly actually uh, contrary to the existing uh, Sarfiazi Act. And that's, uh, that, uh, that's, uh, that's actually a very uh, uh, shocking thing to happen to realize after creating a creation of a structure. Uh, the headwinds, uh, and we do not know at this point whether these are temporary headwinds or they are more lasting in nature, is the terms of trade are turning negative. For all we know that these uh, global growth may not sustain and prices may collapse and therefore, you know, the rising rise in oil prices, et cetera, may not be as harmful to the uh, economy and we could probably have uh, better terms of trade. But as of now, it seems that alongside the pandemic led damages to supply chains, the terms of trade reversal is not, it's moving against uh, India's favor. And then the elevated inflation is uh, hurting consumer confidence because the consumer demand is so very depressed the, 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 the risk of uh, high consumer prices or food and fuel particularly uh, denting consumer demand is actually quite high and it's increasingly becoming so because households have lost a lot of income, many households. A recent report by Oxfam also points about uh, point notes. Of, of course, it's measuring measurements are difficult, but uh, there is some credence to the fact and some uh, uh, anecdotal as well as, you know, uh, micro survey evidence to show that household incomes have generally fallen quite significantly. The recovery data also, the advanced estimates also point towards that, that uh, consumption is way below what uh, it's about, just 97%. It's expected to be about 97% of what its level was in FY20. So there is a lot of depression there. Uh, the biggest constraint is uh, also fiscal because if we have to find, we have to revive consumer demand, 
and if private capex is not going to you know if it is not getting uh, encouragement or uh, seeing visible demand on the horizon then obviously there is a huge role for fiscal policy out there the pro problem is that india's debt uh, particularly post crisis has shot up to 90% of gdp and no matter how we stretch and comb and cut corners there is no fiscal space. There is little to none fiscal space, and it's 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 a very binding constraint. It's a, also a binding constraint which is becoming increasingly more so because the external environment has become very unfavorable. Unfavorable in the sense that apart from the reversal in the times uh, terms of trade, there is also very hard evidence that the U.S. will start tightening monetary policy. It's a matter of uh, the timing uh, uh, or the path may be unknown, but as many as four interest rate increases are expected next year, uh, sorry, this year in 2022. And such, uh, you know, that always places uh, emerging economies at the most severe risk, including India, India, and if oil prices are moving in tandem. So uh, these, uh, these uh, turn off uh, in the external environment always binds policy discipline much more significantly. Policies just have to be very, very foolproof in order to uh, not uh, expose or incur any kind of macroeconomic uh, vulnerabilities, which could expose India to uh, more um, instability. There is also the pressure of medium-term consolidation. The risk here is that uh, until now, and even now, uh, globally, markets, as well as investors and inter international agencies, including governments. In general, there are what you would call the pandemic uh, reprieve upon uh, policies. There is no guidance or advice. Everybody's fiscal position, global debt is at unprecedentedly high levels. Fiscal positions are adverse everywhere all across the world. And therefore you could say that the threshold or the bars for uh, fiscal repairs and all as of now are certainly you know, extended. Uh, no one expects very hard fiscal insolidation and including the IMF, its advice is to go slow. But at the same time, the question of medium term consolidation to rule out the adverse effects of crowding in, et cetera, particularly if private demand were to revive, these are questions can, that can no longer be dodged by India. And therefore, even if the government were to expand uh, public spending, uh, I think given the extent of the depression, this would be very low, would have to be very, very minimal. So then uh, the other is the compelling of uh, RBI will also, it's already been normalizing policies and it will increasingly move in that direction. We do not know, it does expect inflation to come down from the middle of the next year, uh, this year, sorry, and keep uh, being rooted in 2021. So we come to the uh, cloud, uh, the, the silver lining in almost all these clouds, which is exports. There's been a performance has been stellar this year. And from all accounts, uh, exporters have still many more orders in the pipeline. Well, demand has been good. The problem is that, uh, not problem, but uh, all EMEs uh, have exported very well. And some like China, Vietnam, et cetera, have outsurpassed uh, many others, and including India. So the sustainability uh, of exports and the external demand is subject to uncertainties at this point. 
the popular uh, belief is that the US Fed has lagged so much and is so much behind the curve in terms of tightening that just the monetary policy catch up in the US risks, uh, threatens, uh, imper may imperil growth, threatens the risk of sliding the US economy into a short recession. We do not know how that, whether the landing in the US will be hard or the Fed can achieve a soft landing. But the fact of the matter is that China is slowing. That's another. So two of the largest economies, the US is uncertain, but China is visibly slowing and it has already been struggling to get back to its pre-pandemic growth rate. In the last quarter, although in 21, it grew at a robust 8.1%, but in the last, last quarter, it has growth has fallen back. And not just that, its retail sales are still below the pre-pandemic levels. So there is a concern about China. And certainly, if two large economies slow down, Indian uh, exports uh, do face that kind of uncertain headwinds. The second is that we are not sure about global inflation. There is uh, two camps, team transitory and team permanent. But beyond that, uh, the, the real issue is that there were structural forces in the 2000s which actually repressed global inflation, kept it very low. These forces were technological changes, demographic changes, globalization, but now some of these forces are in reversal, particularly there is a deglobalization. There is uh, many countries, uh, in fact, the large ones, especially the large nations, have been uh, increasingly resorting to activist and more interventionist industrial policies. Governments are also turning pro-labor, which means that encouraging increases in wages so as to uh, rectify the uh, depression in real wages or stagnancy of real wages that uh, is suspected to have been unleashed on account of technological change, the relocation of manufacturing uh, from uh, across the world to places with the, very, the lowest uh, uh, labor costs and so on. There are also new forces which could keep inflation elevated, which is to do with climate change and the fast-paced uh, transitions, uh, energy transitions happening in uh, some of the countries, particularly the large and advanced nations. So, uh, of course, we have to see whether comp Indian competitiveness can overcome these factors and override these obstructions. The past is not too encouraging. Uh, because typically India has uh, not managed to keep abreast of competitiveness uh, gains of the kind that displayed the nimble-footedness by countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, and so on. So who knows, but we could maybe perhaps turn the tide. So, so my, uh, uh, I think this is the last slide. And uh, so, so the conclusion is that COVID, COVID is already weakening the, is weakening the already fragile household balance sheets, then serious headwinds from demand constraints. Uh, external demand is iffy. Uh, as of the moment, it seems very good. If these are the forces and if it's the structural forces that are underlying India's economic growth, potential output has indeed shrunk, then in that case, getting back to a higher growth trajectory could be a distant and long-term call. And um, I will conclude at this point uh, with thanks to all. And I welcome uh, comments from everybody. May I sh uh, continue to share the screen in case anybody wants? Uh,
or should I stop the share? Yes, yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Renu, for Renu for that uh, very uh, very lucid and very. In fact, you have raised so many questions. I think uh, um, we still don't have many answers. I guess. Um, more, let me go to the discussants. Um, can I request uh, Mr. Arun? Sir, please unmute. Ah, so whenever I listen to uh, Dr. Yunukoli, I find myself in agreement most of the time. Here also, I, except for the last panel, I would agree with her uh, uh, in uh, total, everything she has said. But I think the uh, global prospects are slightly more positive than uh, what she uh, apprehended. Uh, in the first place, I don't believe uh, deglobalization uh, is going to happen. The global economy is actually integrating ever more. Even after the rift between the US and China, uh, US financial institutions have been allowed greater sway in the uh, Chinese financial system. All the major uh, merchant banks in the US are now vying for a pie in asset management in China, and the Chinese government has allowed them to move. Uh, in 2021, China's trade surplus is some $876 billion. Their exports total to $3.6 trillion. So these are not signs of any deglobalization, but of you know aggressive uh, continuing globalization. Now, uh, if you look at the larger picture, some some fourteen trillion dollars worth of additional liquidity has been created uh, to fight the worst effects of the pandemic. Now, even if uh, rates are uh, going to be increased, raised probably three four times globally, all that liquidity is still there. That money has to be deployed somewhere. And if we can create a policy framework that can absorb some of that capital, there's no way uh, that capital will not come to India. Uh, and energy prices, you know, uh, well, of course, uh, oil prices are being uh, kept artificially high by production curbs in OPEC uh, and Russia. But that might not be sustainable endlessly because they themselves know that uh, while it is good to try and harvest the high prices while the demand is still strong, if you keep raising prices to a level where that kills off that growth and therefore demand for their product, they know that will not be uh, helpful for their own uh, state budgets and their oil revenues. So beyond a point, uh, a production that is constrained artificially will not stay constrained forever. It, it should, the supply should uh, be forthcoming. And if the Iran nuclear deals uh, come through, that is an additional uh, supply, uh, probably 200, uh, 300,000 uh, barrels per day, which will come out straight. Uh, so the global environment, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is continue to be one of uh, strong export growth or strong capital supplies and a relatively moderate uh, interest rates even now. The question is, are we in a position to leverage this uh, for our own domestic economy? Now, I think, uh, again, while there are uh, very serious constraints, I don't think those constraints are you know, 
such that they cannot be tackled. Yes, our banks have been very reluctant to lend uh, for the last few years, but they have, uh, you know, although their gross in PAs have come down, that is because the RBI has uh, halted uh, the asset quality recognition, some moratorium and recognizing bad loans. So once that is resumed, I'm sure the bad loan portfolio will go up. So I think some serious uh, financial engineering will have to be done by the government to enable the banks to start lending again. Now, one positive feature of the last uh, couple of years has been the sharp surge in the volume of debt raised from the bond market by companies, which has been unprecedented. Uh, they have been issuing debt and their people have been uh, buying it. Why we still don't have an actively traded debt market, uh, raising debt by issuing uh, commercial paper and bonds has really become active over the last couple of years. And this is a very positive trend. I think that will uh, continue. Now, as a result of the pandemic and the pandemic-induced slowdown, a large part of the small and medium enterprise universe will be in serious uh, problems right now. Now, the question is, how will you allow them to uh, revive operations? If they are constrained by the unmet financial servicing obligations to whoever they have borrowed money from, whether banks or non-banking financial companies or uh, politicians with money to spare or whatever, they will not be able to uh, come back on their feet. So they have to be given some serious financial relief if they have to be able to start working again. Now, why should they be able to start working again? Is there any revived economic momentum for them to uh, start producing and uh, you know, feed that growth momentum? I think there is. Uh, for example, if you look at the uh, fixed gross fixed capital formation uh, figures, for the first time, they are on the uptrend. And the figure for the last quarter actually are much higher than for the year as a whole, which means this is going up. The import of capital goods has been more than uh, you know, a double digit rate for the last uh, months for which data is available. Uh, so while our trade deficit has been going up, people are consuming more uh, you know, high quality gourmet food and all that in the past. In the last uh, six months or so, our uh, uh, trade gap and the current account gap is being driven by a rise in capital imports, capital goods imports, which is a very positive thing. And uh, if you look at the trend in cement prices, steel prices, and so on and so forth, while they have come down uh, most recently, there is some presumed uptick in their demand. Uh, companies like uh, uh, Tata Steel, they have been able to pay down some 20, 30,000 crore worth of debt. Uh, from their operational revenues and not just from substituting uh, one kind of debt with the other kind of debt. So there is some momentum happening. As uh, uh, Dr. Kohli pointed out, the real estate cycle had been really bad for the last few years, but now there is uh, some kind of uh, seeming momentum and they are able to sell flats and new flats are being uh, built, as you can see from our daily newspaper, page one, advertisements. Uh, more projects are taking off and there is presumably some demand we created with us. So if policy actually gives some support to this uh, signs of uh, economic revival, 
things can go really far. But again, this will mean large amounts of uh, fiscal expansion. While our space is constrained, I see no uh, escape from the government having to borrow more and, uh, and then, uh, spending more. If they want to monetize uh, the, I mean, the, they want to borrow from the RBI, I think that is perfectly valid and that should be, not be an option that should be uh, you know, ruled out uh, initially. And uh, global capital is available on large scale. Now here again, the one issue is, do our accounting standards, do our corporate governance standards, do our uh, reporting standards, inspire the confidence that is required for global capital to flow into Indian projects. This is a very important thing. Uh, yes, we have now adopted uh, global accounting standards. Our uh, accounting standards are now more or less aligned with global standards. But the kind of uh, you know, bank frauds that have taken place, the kind of corporate governance failures that are constantly reported, they suggest that while we have formal standards in practice, they are not really adhered to. Then there the government's failure to respect international arbitration awards and constantly challenging them, constantly trying to circumvent them, using legal and social means to negate them. That again is something that global capital will find uh, deep discomfort with when it wants to come and invest in India. So these are some issues that the government writers. And I think as far as allowing the small and medium enterprises to uh, you know, get out of their current travail, there are two, three courses that are available to the government. Banks, actually banks only cater to some 15, 20% of the credit requirements of MSME uh, sectors. 80% of their uh, loans uh, credit is drawn from non-banking finance companies or other informal sources. But to the extent banks cater to some of their debt, they should be asked to convert their debt into equity. Uh, which can again be uh, sold once uh, things are better and people are, companies are in a position to buy back their debt. Uh, so that is one way of giving them temporary respite from uh, having to service those loans we say right now they cannot. Again, large companies which buy from their uh, good, goods from MSME sector, uh, uh, inputs, raw materials and so on and so forth, components, they should be asked to buy stakes in the company. So again, they are able to have some respite from uh, having to service uh, their loans. And that can be, the government can arrange for some kind of uh, uh, capital to be given for these companies to uh, take stakes in their supplying small and medium enterprises. And these are ways in which you can actually ensure that some capital goes to these people, which is non-debt capital, which doesn't require immediate servicing. And I think this is something that uh, can be uh, attempted. Now, uh, unlike in 2019-20, when, uh, as Dr. Kohli pointed out, there was no precipitated reason why there should be a crisis. Uh, uh, and because of the absence of crisis, no remedial measures were taken either. Whereas during the pandemic, because you know there is distress, the government has vastly expanded the food distribution schemes, the MGRGA uh, program. The budgets have gone up, the expenditure has gone up. And the welcome development on that front is that the demand has come down in the last uh, couple of months, which means that people are actually finding employment in uh, agriculture. 
and not necessarily resorting to uh, this dole from the government to disrupt as an employment guarantee scheme. So this, uh, some signs of a revival in rural demand, which companies also uh, report, uh, FMCG companies also report, is a positive sign. So uh, overall, we have scope to actually engineer a recovery, provided lots of money is funded to uh, help these small and medium enterprises to avoid having to repay or service their loans, uh, which they have probably taken for pure consumption purposes during the period of prolonged non-linear economic activity. Mm -hmm. They need to be given this time and they're given the capital to uh, not have to immediately service those loans, which will actually kill them and finish off last phase of the economy. So I think uh, if constructive action is taken, we can come out of this and still uh, grow at a fairly respectable 7% rate. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Arun. Um, I think you are um, externally optimistic and internally pessimistic in a sense. Uh, so let me go to the next uh, panelist, uh, Dennis. Okay, th uh, thank you, Bono. Um, I must say that it was very heartwarming to listen to Dr. Reno's uh, uh, analysis of what would have happened pre during the pre-COVID period. And of course, uh, some of the policy options expressed by Arun for reviving the growth back to some percent. Uh, it was truly a very interesting um, uh, uh, talk we had been having. Um, now, uh, I would like to actually highlight a few statistics in order to, um, you know, uh, bring up certain uh, points elucidated by uh, Dr. Reno. Uh, um, see, uh, Indian economy, after achieving uh, a growth of 8.3% in 2016-17, it has been sliding down. Uh, starting from 2012-13, the growth was on the upswing. It peaked in 2016-17, then it slowed down. The question is obviously, whether this kind of trend noticed, is it structural or cyclical? So this is the context in which I would place the uh, Dr. Reno's exposition in a perspective. Now, uh, looking at, uh, the slides and the presentation made by her, it appears that uh, Indian economy is uh, suffering a lot, is ailing a lot due to more of structural reasons, right? Now, uh, we know that uh, if, uh, when we uh, look at the demand side of our economy, we know that uh, bulk of our GDP originate from uh, private final consumption expenditure. Uh, more than 60% uh, of our GDP is accounted by it. Uh, and therefore, the obvious question is, uh, uh, if at all we have to revive the economy, then what can be done? Can we actually, is there any scope for reviving the uh, private consumption expenditure? So uh, in this context, some of the uh, points uh, brought out by Dr. Renu uh, is worth exploring further. Particularly, uh, her exposition, which is rooted in permanent income hypothesis, that is uh, the expectation of future streams of income. Once when that is impacted, then what the households would tend to do, 
they will actually cut down their current consumption in and if at all they carry any liabilities as the case may we find in the case of uh, household sector in our economy they would actually try to retire the debt so what has happened in the course of uh, even uh, before pre covid season we had uh, as it was presented by dr reno the households had actually preferred to retire their liability debt in uh, to uh, you know carrying on with their current level of consumption so therefore we find that there is a collapse of the uh, consumption uh, private final consumption in the economy uh, as a result of that what has happened then we look at another key component of uh, demand that is capital formation we find that uh, that has also collapsed so one i mean uh, one leads the other so therefore in the context of uh, ongoing or the in our uh, uh, you know uh, uh, discussion on the growth prospects after covid 19 what becomes is very important is reviving the demand in the economy now there is an optimism and we know that uh, the uh, according to the recent ennosus uh, uh, release of advanced estimates indian economy is expected to grow at the rate of 9.2% in 2122 as against 7.3% of last year now when we look at 9.2% it is certainly higher than the peak rate of 8.3 which was achieved in 2016 so obviously there is a tendency for uh, anyone to be very you know uh euphoric about uh, the kind of growth we are reporting but then we also know that uh, there is something known as base year fit and therefore uh, if you actually work out the growth rate you take the absolute number of 2011-12 given by nso and work it out on the base year of 1920 then we see a growth rate of around 1.9% so that means we are still far behind the average growth of 6.6% reported during the 8 years preceding the covid year and this year particularly 2011-12 the expectation of nso is that the private final consumption expenditure is to grow at the rate of 6.5% which is less than 9.2% of the overall gdp growth and since they have given some statistics for the first half and second half of the current year if you look at uh, what is the growth of private final consumption in the first half and the expected one in the second half we find that according to nss's uh, estimates in the first half private consumption expenditure was expect was to grow at the rate of 13.5% and in the second half it is to grow at the rate of 1.8% look at uh, capital formation in the first half it is to grow at the rate of 28.3% in the second half it falls to 6.1%. So it obviously raises the concern what uh, Dr. Renu says, that is the uh, structural issues is linked very much to the private final, pri private uh, spending, in the, uh, particularly consumption spending. Now the question is, if you have to revive the economy, then obviously the, uh, the candidate will be the private uh, spending or, or private consumption spending which also leads the uh, private investment so now what is the option we have got in this context i would like to highlight yes obviously uh, all of us will agree that uh, fiscal expansion is a clear cut choice there's no doubt about it now the related question is 
how this kind of uh, you know our uh, planned fiscal expansion will be you know accommodated uh, by reserve bank of india yes we know that uh, if there's no harm but will will uh, reserve bank will our monetary policy be accommodating enough to allow this kind of fiscal expansion to revive the growth now if you look at uh, the the uh, process of policy making in the last couple of years we find that they have set an uh, inflation target and they look at a band of uh, 4 to 6% now if you look at uh, the recent uh, uh, inflation rate let's say cpi based inflation rate it is still within this band 4.4% uh, to 6% at the same time what we should not ignore is on month on month basis it has been rising now it is uh, in the month of december it stands at about at about 5.6% combined rural and urban if you look at urban inflation it has already reached 5.8% so we might actually think that in the for the forthcoming mpc which will be convened in uh, february this may not be considered very much but then look at the wp which also feeds into discipline wp rate has already reached 13.6% in december imagine this is this is against 2% what we had seen in uh, no uh, one year ago and uh, this is also on the upswing now uh, if you look at two uh, basic uh, baskets of uh, wp that is primary article it has already reached 13.4% fuel and uh, power inflation it has already 32% one of the reasons for uh, fuel inflation is they say that international oil uh, crude oil prices has been on the rise for last 7 years and it has reached uh, recently uh, somewhere around 86 dollar per barrel and uh, when we say that uh, this kind of uh, there is going to be collapse in the prices one has to be very careful because uh, for me since this kind of uh, you know reaching the level of uh, 86 uh, dollar per barrel was not achieved overnight rather it has been a steadier rise over the last 7 years so therefore i would say that this uh, increase in the international oil prices is going to further feed on to the uh, inflationary trend in the economy as a result we might actually soon or later we might uh, witness higher inflation tendencies now if you look at uh, nss estimate itself and when we work out implicit gdp deflator it works out around 7.7% which is way above the upper band fixed by mpc so therefore the concern is if in february what will be the response of uh, mpc uh, or how to what extent or we will be accommodating any of this expansionary fiscal policies of government i really uh, doubt it now uh, if that's the case uh, what would be the option even if they have to accommodate it is going to result in higher uh, uh, rates interest rates in the economy and to give you some idea if you look at the recent activities in the government market we find that uh, cost of government bonds have been on the rise right all this will point out to the fact that we might be if at all government has to accommodate or we has to accommodate then there will be some kind of some amount of increase in the rates this is what i am foreseeing but is that good when we talk about growth revival then the option is can we think of some options right whereby 
uh, we can think of fiscal expansion without uh, bringing much burden on uh, Reserve Bank of India, which on which will have to also fight against the uh, rising inflation. So here uh, there are several options. Uh, we talked about it, right? Um, which can be short term, medium, and long term. We can actually commit ourselves to some of the external agencies and bring more discipline to ourselves. All these options are there. But when I was looking at uh, what options available at home, then I find that, uh, yes, recently, uh, government, uh, government has been relying too much on indirect taxes. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of the policies of government as highlighted by Dr. Renu itself has impacted the private con consumption expenditure. And one of it is uh, definitely GST. It reduces the propensity to consume to some extent. We cannot deny that. Now, but at the same time, it also, it, uh, this uh, indirect sources have also become uh, you know, uh, off late. It is like, it is substituting direct, in that, uh, direct taxes. So in this context, uh, I, when I see some of these government uh, so, you know, uh, uh, revenue sources, I find that, uh, uh, yes, uh, at one level, uh, we need to follow Keynesian formula that is uh, go for a fiscal expansion to uh, uh, revive the demand system. At the same time, we should not be constrained to buy, uh, you know, uh, monetary policy that I really doubt whether it will continue to remain accommodated. In this context, I, I when I look at this government uh, finances, I find that, look, uh, uh, instead of relying too much on indirect taxes, can we actually look at uh, our own direct taxes revenue? First of all, I would like to highlight the kind of activity that we were witnessing in the stock market during the last 22 months. Though the economy has been, you know, ailing, is enormous. Is enormous. This the, the kind of transaction that is happening is also enormous. At the same time, what is the budgeted uh, revenue from this kind of uh, uh, securities transaction tax? It is a paltry sum of 12,500 crore. So I see that just increase the rate at this point. And remember what Tobin had to say to cut off the speculation. He advocated tax. So why don't you increase the securities uh, transaction tax rate at this point of time and try to realize more of one revenue? This is one thing. So that uh, your revenue will be and more higher too. than what you expected. The second one is, look, uh, you know, when we look at the budget uh, notes, there is a component. We talk about uh, income ta direct taxes raised, but not realized. Look at it. How much of money is lying there? And uh, all those people have already provided for it because anything uh, of the income tax liability will have to be provided. They have provided for it. So why don't you actually improve our tax administration? Go for amicable resolution with all the contestants and uh, at least try to realize a part of it. I'm sure at least 5 lakh crore will be released out of it. Right, realize more of that. The third option, all right, what I can think of is, of course, it is something that Dr. Reno had highlighted, but uh, in my view, it is not something me and Dr. Shetty also had written a paper about it in EPW that is about uh, um, corporate taxation policy pursued in August uh, 2019, whereby in one go, we said all companies, if they don't claim for any exemptions or relief, they can actually uh, opt for uh, lower tax rate. There is somewhere around 20%. Uh, 
And at that time, the estimate was it, the revenue foregone on account of this policy was one point rupees one point four five lakh crore. We did some uh, calculation. Then we found that this one point four five lakh was going to wipe out close to nineteen percent of the corporate uh, tax budgeted for that year. See, we are actually wiped now. What is that we are done because of this kind of policies? At one level, we have removed one fifth of our uh, direct uh, uh, corporate uh, tax. At second level, remember, this kind of tax exemptions and reliefs, these are some incentives in the hands of government. And the government, if they lose out this kind of incentive, instead of having them in their hands, if they allow the companies right, to function on their own, then the ins, you know, it's a simple uh, macroeconomic principle that people respond to incentives. Then what's the incentive government has in its hand to actually revive corporate investment? Government in one strike only, it also you know, threw away all the incentives it had in their hands. So what is the incentive now government will have to actually revive corporate investment? So if Dennis, we actually- Dennis, we are running out of time. Okay, one more minute, this is my last point. So in case we actually, we look at our corporate taxation policy, I'm sure that a lot more amount of money will be released. These three sources of uh, you know, uh, direct taxes will actually have a far more uh, positive impact on government revenue. So instead of relying too much on their you know, indirect taxes, as well as you know, whether the uh, fiscal expansion as pursued by the government will be accommodated by Reserve Bank or not, we need not worry about it, but through own revenue mobilization only, government can actually revive the economy. I'm sure that uh, in the immediate term, right, uh, the situation may not look as grim as what it used to be like uh, last year, but it looks better, right? I'm sure that we'll be able to achieve a, a higher growth, if not in the immediate future, but sometime, but it, uh, uh, it calls for re-examining some of the structural uh, process. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Denise, for uh, highlighting this uh, tax issues. So now let me go to Radhika. I, I know she has a presentation. Uh, Radhika, over to you. Thank you, sir. Professor Arjun, can you share my screen, my slideshow, please? Yes, I'm it's on. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, uh, and thank you for uh, an insightful presentation by Dr. Kohli and the insightful discussion by uh, the discussants. Uh, I will uh, just briefly touch upon some of the points that were raised by Dr. Kohli and the other discussants, uh, and mostly talking about the policy environment that currently exists, and that should shape the kind of responses uh, that uh, are needed to drive a sustainable growth path. Uh, next slide, please. Yeah, so just to uh, 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 a quick backdrop of where we are currently and what happened during the last two years, because that will just uh, set the motivation uh, background for uh, the kind of policy responses that are needed. So uh, if we look at the early last year, that is uh, 2021, 
Indian economy was gradually recovering from the uh, first wave of pandemic. And then we had the second wave, uh, uh, though it was quite severe health-wise, but uh, in terms of its economic impact, the economic impact was uh, primarily restricted to the first quarter, which was the April to June quarter, where we, uh, where we saw a substantial um, uh, slowdown. And then from July uh, onwards, we saw uh, recovery, uh, and then that recovery continued. Even in the July to September quarter, if you look at the GDP numbers, we saw that we, we had uh, reached the pre-COVID levels, though there were sectoral uh, variations. So in consumption, we didn't, but in other sectors like manufacturing, we reached the pre-COVID levels. And even after that, if we look at the period post the second quarter, we saw the high frequency indicators were showing a significant uh, rebound and that led many of the uh, 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 bodies to raise their uh, growth projections for India for uh, FY 2022 and for the next uh, financial year. But then we had the uh, second, we had the third wave of uh, COVID and uh, now we are in the midst of the third wave. And it is expected that the damage to it's, it's seen based on international other countries experience that the damage to life and livelihood is expected to be lower primarily due to our vaccination, our ability to cope, herd behavior, herd uh, immunity, et cetera. Uh, next slide. Yeah, so what was the policy uh, response during this period? We saw uh, unprecedented amount of uh, easing by, of both fiscal and monetary policy, both in India and in other countries. Uh, Primarily in India, monetary policy did the heavy lifting uh, in terms of um, uh, providing uh, credit at eased conditions uh, through monetary policy expansion, through buying of bonds, so that it's, it was easier for uh, uh, banks uh, to lend to other entities, to industries, to MSMEs at lower rates. So we saw a very unprecedented uh, ease monetary policy, which was in line with what other countries had done. Uh, on fiscal front, we saw in other uh, countries, uh, particularly in the US, we saw a very massive stimulus uh, in the form of cash transfers and uh, other kind of handouts. But in India, fiscal uh, uh, expansion was primarily targeted because as we have seen from uh, Dr. Kohli's talk also that in 2019 also our fiscal situation was quite fragile and we had to uh, 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 rely on the FRBM amendments to deviate from our fiscal deficit target. Uh, so our fiscal position was not as good even before COVID that we could have embarked on a very uh, expansive fiscal expansion program that other countries did. But then what we saw as, a, as an outcome of uh, fiscal expansion in other countries was a sudden rebound in demand. So what we are seeing in other countries and that is now having a bearing on uh, India also through global headwinds is a rise in uh, inflation. We saw a huge uh, rebound in uh, uh, demand that has resulted in increase in energy prices, commodity prices, input prices and so on. Uh, and that is now leading to uh, an increase in inflation, uh, transmission of inflationary pressures to India, primarily through input costs. So. 
now this is the situation that we are now in that uh, since the second half of 2021 we have seen resurgence of inflation uh, which was earlier considered to be primarily due to supply side factors and transitory but now it is becoming a mix of both supply side and demand side and the problem now is that both fiscal and monetary policy are running out of the instruments, are running out of the policy toolkit that they applied during the uh, COVID period. So now it's not possible for monetary policy to, uh, e to continue to embark upon the uh, unprecedented easing that it did in uh, 2020 and 2021, because now we are seeing sustained inflationary pressures. So we have already seen signs of monetary policy normalization uh, being done by advanced economies. And even in uh, India, RBI has a very subtly started doing uh, normalization through variable reserve rep uh, repo auction. Uh, and that is reflected in rise in uh, interest rates. So we are seeing short-term interest rates have started rising. So the, the bottom line is that now going forward, we have we do not have that kind of a uh, space, uh, fiscal and monetary space that we had in uh, 2020 and 2021. And in this backdrop, we have to think about the policy measures, the instruments, the uh, options to uh, think about a sustained uh, growth uh, recovery uh, in the post-COVID period. Uh, next slide, please. So one more point is, uh, uh, resurgence of inflationary pressure that we've already talked about. The other point that needs uh, attention is uh, uh, boosting consumer confidence. So uh, what we did see during the second half of 2021 was that business sentiment started to rise. And normally if we, uh, you know, uh, see uh, if we superpose business sentiments and consumer confidence we see that once business sentiments picks up the consumer confidence also picks up because business sentiments rises means that companies become more optimistic about employment they start hiring and we did see a um, uh, improvement in hiring activity by uh, companies so we could have hoped that consumer confidence which was rising but rising very very gradually could have increased but the uh, third wave has again dented the consumer sentiment and on top of that now we have uh, inflationary tendencies that could further uh, put a, a dent on consumer spending and uh, consumer sentiment and this is very uh, subtly reflected in some of the data that we have been seeing especially if we look at the bank credit data the composition of uh, the you know the sectoral deployment of bank credit shows that it is the retail loans that has been driving whatever uh, tepid bank growth we were seeing and within retail loans also it was it was actually uh, loans against um, the gold jewelry that was rising so this was this was just an indication of distress borrowing that uh, consumers and uh, uh, particularly retail consumers were indulging in because their incomes were uh, had taken a hit during the COVID uh, period. Uh, so to ensure uh, a positive growth prospects, uh, a sustained growth recovery, it is important to think about boosting consumer uh, uh, confidence. Uh, and in this uh, uh, aspect, it is also important to look at another very important data point, uh, which is uh, labor force participation rate. So if we look at the CMI uh, survey, what we've seen is that though employment has been increasing, but what is very important point is uh, that uh, labor force participation rate has not uh, reached the pre-COVID level. So it's still hovering around 39 to uh, 40 percent. 
And this is something which is a kind of a long-term scarring of the pandemic that people are not even opting themselves to be part of the labor market. Uh, so this is something that needs to be uh, addressed as a part of uh, measures to have a more sustained uh, growth path. And given that we have to recognize that the fiscal space is limited and as uh, uh, pointed out earlier, if we talk about uh, the fiscal uh, space, and if we follow a more expansionary fiscal policy that will have that will make the job of RBI as a debt manager difficult, because till now we have seen that RBI has been able to manage debt, uh, government debt at uh, sub 6% uh, in 2020-21, we saw the government borrowing program was low, uh, the cost was low, but uh, now uh, yields have been uh, rising uh, primarily due to higher inflation as well as uh, talk by uh, the US Federal Reserve on raising interest rates. So we have already seen an upward pressure on um, uh, government uh, yields. And in this backdrop, it is, it is, uh, it's, it's challenging to have a very substantial uh, fiscal push uh, through the budget. So the other options could be more targeted spending on the sectors that have uh, uh, borne the brunt of uh, the pandemic, primarily the MSMEs, and also targeted spending uh, to boost employment through Manrega and other such schemes. The other uh, part is the infra push, which the uh, government has already embarked on uh, through a number of institutional measures, as well as um, uh, through programs like the National Infrastructure Pipeline, National Monetization Pipeline. And now the government has set up a body called NAPFID. Uh, to uh, uh, to mobilize finances for long-term uh, infra spending, so it's very important to mobilize this and to uh, see that this uh, this it sees the uh, implementation is the key now because the body has been set up, the board is there, but now how quickly and how efficiently the funds can be mobilized for infrastructure is something to be uh, seen, and whatever impediments are there in this, the implementation needs to be addressed so that infrastructure gets a boost. And when infrastructure gets a boost, we, we, we can hope for higher employment opportunities, higher multiplier effect on uh, long-term growth prospect. So this is a very important step that some reforms have been uh, undertaken by the government and these need to be followed by uh, swift implementation and uh, addressing the policy uh, hurdles. Uh, on private investment, we still see that it is, uh, uh, it needs uh, a push primarily due to the last two years we've seen considerable amount of deleveraging by corporates. They have already deleveraged to the extent of uh, rupees three trillion. And uh, till now we don't see um, uh, private investment picking up. If we look at uh, numbers from the bank credit data, we still see that uh, bank credit to large industries is largely flat. So whatever bank credit is uh, happening, it is either to the MSMEs or to uh, the retail sector. So services and large industries are still languishing in their credit demand. So that is the, that needs uh, a pickup. Uh, and one of the policy measures is to boost to boost private investment is to have greater policy certainty, policy stability, and uh, measures to uh, 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 ease the ease of doing business, uh, whatever uh, impediments are there. And a lot of steps have been taken to uh, lower the compliance costs, 
and a more detailed study is required to further um, uh, provide greater policy stability and to avoid the missteps like retrospective taxation and uh, so, uh, so forth, and also promote foreign uh, investments through both FDI uh, through through the FDI route. The last step. Uh, which is more medium term uh, solution is to uh, again bring back the financial sector reforms on the agenda. Uh, some of the financial sector reforms were introduced, but then they were uh, put on the uh, back burner. Uh, for example, the financial resolution and deposit insurance bill, uh, bank privatization was introduced, but uh, it's, it's the, the next step which requires legislative amendments to um, uh, bring uh, to expedite privatization has still not taken place. So financial sector reforms in the form of FRDI privatization, um, uh, thinking of some kind of an independent debt management agency, because now it is becoming difficult for the Reserve Bank to look at both uh, inflation management as well as debt management. So uh, all these steps, though it may not show their impact in the immediate term, but they will have an impact in the uh, medium uh, in the medium to long term, and these are all uh, productivity enhancing measures uh, to boost uh, growth prospects. So with this, I will uh, stop. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Radhika. Uh, Arjun, you want to take some questions from the audience? Yes. Yes, we only have one question from Chavi. Ma'am, as per the quarterly employment survey, employment in nine sectors of the economy showed a spike in July to September 2021 as compared to April to June when the second wave struck. How far do you predict the impact of the third wave we are experiencing right now is going to be in these sectors? Also, the economic survey for FY20 predicted a V-shaped recovery, but do you see such recovery in the near future, especially after the third wave, or is it still going to be K-shaped as predicted by many economists? So very general question. So, yeah. Rene, you want Thank to you take it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, on the first one, uh, the quarterly pickup in uh, employment, uh, uh, that's understandable uh, because uh, it's coming from uh, a dip, A, and B, we've also seen a pickup which is mirrored in the um, uh, data on economic activities, frequency indicators, as well as the high frequency indicators, as well as the GDP data. Both showed, and that's also there was a huge fallback again in the first quarter, April, June. Uh, going forward, uh, it's hard to predict from there as to what's going to be the evolution. And I think that comes back to your second question, which is about a V-shaped recovery. Yes, uh, a V-shaped recovery, but first of all, you know, there are two things to look at it, and uh, one can look at it in two ways. Uh, typically, uh, after recessions, the springback is usually can be a V or, you know, more flatter U and so on. But the point is that the bounce back from a recession, whether ordinary recession or a COVID-induced recession, it typically reaches a peak. And the challenge there is that, you know, once that peak is reached, whether that peak is uh, matching up to the previous peak, peak from which growth had plunged in the recession, A, and B, uh, whether growth uh, picks up again from that V onwards or falls back. Sometimes, you know, we can have L, we can have a double dip and so on. So there is, you know, it goes, goes back to the points that I raised about the medium term. So when you're talking about V, we are talking about the near term, which is a year uh, or less than a year. 
The challenge is thereafter, what's going to happen thereafter. So that is, uh, as uh, I think, is uncertain and there is more evidence inclined to suggest that uh, return to a high growth trajectory, return back to a 7%, 7 percent, 7 plus percent path may, may not be that easy. Yeah, thank you, Renu. Uh, I would like to take a couple of minutes to answer any of the, respond to any of the discussions thing. Or... Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, yes. I can, uh, yes. Uh, very briefly, uh, we already we are running time. And uh, it was very nice. All three uh, panelists, uh, you know, gave very useful uh, comments and uh, I'm uh, very happy, uh, delighted to, you know, at that. It's flattering, actually. On Arun's point uh, about, uh, there were three things uh, about, uh, one was about the globalization. I agree with him. And yet I would just point to the fact that uh, deglobalization is uh, or hasn't been any kind of uh, one-off event. It's a process. And one of the things that matter or make look material to me is that post 2010 or nine, that crisis, the increased protectionism and the recovery of world trade after 2012-13, it has actually world trade growth has uh, not uh, exceeded uh, world GDP growth. And that has been a trend uh, for almost a decade. So I think that's one indicator that needs to matter. Apparently in the last one year or last several months, it has rebounded. But then again, there is COVID distortion out there. We don't know what, how, uh, or how, how, what portion of the world demand is enduring and long lasting what portion is uh, repressed and pent up. On the bond market, uh, yes, uh, unprecedented, but that's the pattern of the bond market. 97% of this has been private placement as in the past. And so, you know, I never build any castles in the air about the bond market, this thing, because as soon as interest rates have started going up now, the corporates have moved to that. And because as long as you are having a private placement and it is permissible, it is opaque, there's going to be no trading and you will not have repeated issues. It's this arbitrage between interest rates that moves from one to the other. And unless you have repeat, uh, repeated issues of the same kind and similarity in corporate bonds, you can't have trading. How can you trade? So that's, uh, that's the pattern of the bond market. Last of all, on the capital good, Yes, it is true that import of capital goods has risen. And that's where, you know, on the export demand is very important. Uh, Long-term trend, we find that there is kind of quite a uh, significant uh, co-movement between the two, which is capital goods imports and uh, exports, which is to do with the intermediate uh, into value into exports. The second is that uh, we don't know how much of it is also representing replacement of domestic production. There is uh evidence to show that uh, because of the unequal uh, recovery and inequal increase in equality a lot of consumption demand is also being fostered and some of it may be to do with electronic goods etc so that is uh, on the optimism about the scope yes i do agree about all that our engineering or maneuvering a revival uh, i have a counter question to that as where will the money come from and, uh, you know, so there, you know, again, we are very all very hopeful that disinvestment and asset monetization will yield the extra funds. That's where, that's the expectation, including the LICIPOs, et cetera. So 
let's hope that uh, that uh, that's very uh, important it's very it's critical indeed uh, on Dennis's remarks uh, about the structural and uh, demand side forces I'm of course uh, pleased uh, at the agreement on this uh, most uh, policymakers refrain from uh, arguing that it is structural they prefer cyclical and I remember now, uh, some time ago, what uh, ex-governor uh, Dr. Y.V. Reddy had remarked in the context of structural and cyclical. And he says, uh, he said that politicians like to, or you know, policy, uh, the government likes to think that when, when it is going up, when growth is going up, then they, they like to think, it, they like to say it is structural. And when it's going down, then they like to say it is cyclical. So that goes back to the policies. And uh, yes, you have given a lot of um, uh, comments and suggestions on taxation side. I'm not sure anybody will agree with the STT taxation. Is, you know, any kinds of suggestion. I think even in an editorial would uh, elicit a lot of <laughs> angst uh, from the public in general, particularly the way in which retail investors have gone into the stock market. And last of all, coming to Radhika's uh, presentation, Oh, very nice, and it was a very good uh, recapitulation of the uh, of the you know trajectory that we have seen uh, after twenty uh, in the COVID period and beyond, uh, and until now. Beyond, uh, I think uh, we uh, maybe Arjun or Bhanu may want to comment on what uh, or summarize uh, whatever. I mean, if you have a view as to what's going to happen. It would be nice to have the chair, uh, last remarks from the chair on that. Yeah, yeah. thank you, thank you. I think um, we almost uh, exceeded 50 by our time. <clears throat> but I did speak to Arjun and he said that, uh, you know, time is not a, there's no limit on the time. And uh, first of all, let me thank all the panelists and uh, Renu for making a very, uh, very, very uh, exhaustive presentation. I'm sure all the participants would have really benefited uh, a lot from this um, uh, seminar and I also show that you know you'll agree that you had a very liberal chair you know although it was five minutes but uh, I, I did feel that you know that I didn't want to disturb the flow of the thoughts that you have and uh, very very uh, important points that have come up um, uh, first, I certainly would not like to summarize because it's very difficult to summarize these four presentations so but first of all I think we all agree that um, um, uh, you know, some part of the slowdown at least is very structural. In fact, one of the uh, few people who think that um, uh, the slowdown is a combination of both structural and cyclical. And I do believe that uh, it's a combination of both and you could have a different policy prescription for uh, that kind of a slowdown. And in terms of the structural, I think all of us will agree that uh, the slowdown in the PFCE is a very, very important aspect. And um, it has been there even pre-COVID situation, and right now it's actually worsening. And uh, in terms of the investments, um, I have a slight disagreement with some of you. And uh, if you look at the advance estimate, I think uh, uh, Arun already pointed out, uh, we have seen an investment rate of 36%. Now, you know, and it's, it's an unprecedented, if you look at for the past 10 years, uh, when the investment rate has actually gone down to some 22 or 23%. Right now it is to 36%. I think 
that is one of the important um, uh, leading indicator for many of us who believe that um, the recovery is going to be on a durable basis for the next two to three years. It may not be sustaining for long, but at least for two to three years. And, and I think, um, um, you know, a couple of things which I thought, uh, which was, um, uh, I think we need to really discuss. Uh, it looks like, you know, uh, because we don't have planning commission, we completely uh, ignore or forget the medium term perspective in this country. And we, we thought that this five trillion economy concept would bring us back to that medium term perspective. So I, I, I guess um, maybe uh, going forward, we need to bring back this five trillion economy um, for whatever worth it is. Uh, maybe for 10 trillion economy right now, people are talking about for by 2030. So in fact, if you want to really achieve a 5 trillion or 10 trillion, um, I think what are the policy measures that we need to have? We need to have a more, I don't have answers for that, but I think um, that is something that we need to bring back uh, when we really talk about um, the medium term uh, growth perspective. Uh, Again, personally, for me, more than the fiscal deficit or growth, um, one of the important aspect, a medium term aspect, is the, the level of public debt. Uh, again, I'm sure all of you agree that um, the post-COVID, the public debt has actually gone to more than 90%. Now, our target, as per the Finance Commission, is to bring down to less than 70%. I think that's a very long call. So um, whether can we stay with this 90% public debt or we need to really bring back to 70% is something that uh, the policy makers need to really uh, talk about it. And in terms of the external sector, again, I thought one thing that is missing is uh, you know, the customs or the import tariffs that has been brought, brought back in this country. Uh, somewhere I wrote about it. Um, so one of the documents we successfully removed from the budget documents was the customs tariff lines. And that was brought back in the last budget. And that is the big structural um, issue that in my view, uh, Renu, you already pointed out that uh, exports are largely import led, right? Now, if you're bringing back this uh, customs tariff lines, uh, are we still going to see a robust recovery in the exports in the future? is something that um, uh, you know, we need to really think about it. Uh, and um, in terms of the taxes, uh, again, uh, Dennis made a very uh, passionate call on you know, uh, increasing the corporate uh, taxes and all those things are the direct taxes. But I think we also need to keep in mind um, what is the net impact of this reduction in the corporate taxes. Uh, whether it is going to increase the tax revenues or it's going to reduce the tax revenues. It's again an empirical question. And, uh, and we also need to keep in mind uh, what happens to the external competitiveness. I think um, those are the, some of the things I thought um, uh, I'll bring it to the table. But in terms of the fiscal space, I'm a little uh, puzzled. You know, um, For 2021, our general government fiscal deficit was somewhere close to 15%. Okay, and now for the current year, it is going to be somewhere close to 10, 10 and a half percent. You know, uh, we have done so much, I guess, when it comes to the fiscal policy. If anybody says that government has done less, I still uh, have my own uh, reservations on that. You know, there's no country which has given 15% fiscal, which is running fiscal deficit of 15% or 10% for the current year. 
And in terms of MSME, again, I, I completely agree with all of you. But if you look at uh, even some of the schemes that have been brought for the MSME sector, the, actually the data says that you know they could not really release the funds. You know the three lakh crore that has been allocated for MSME under the Atmanirbhar Bharat is just around two lakh crore has been disbursed in the for the past uh, twelve months or so. So so these are some of the things that um, uh, I think we need to really think about it. In terms of uh, private banks, I think Radhika has uh, again very passionately came out with this private banks issue. I'm, again, I'm not really sure um, um, whether we need to have less public sector banks or more public sector banks, uh, especially when we have a very long way to go in terms of financial access or financial inclusion. Um, and um, particularly when the size of the rural economy is increasing, what is the role of public sector banks is something that, again, we need to it's very easy to say that, yes, you need to privatize, but can the private banks take the same role or place of public sector banks, especially in the rural areas? In fact, one of the biggest success stories in the recent period is the DBT. Now, if you look at the DBT, what is the role of private sector banks? I think, I think these are all empirical issues. Um, so, and CPA versus WPA, uh, Denise, uh, again, I'm with you on this. Um, empirically, there should be a co-integration, right? Um, there should be a co-integration with a lag of one month or two months. Now it's more than nine months or ten months. So in that sense, one of them must be wrong, right? I don't know. Uh, or one of, something must be happening between the wholesale market and the retail market. Um, Demand. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm talking since Dennis um, looks at the numbers a little more carefully at the ground level. The fact that we get the wholesale market price index much later than the retail market prices. So I don't know how much importance the uh, data generating agencies actually giving in terms of WPA coverage or WPA collection. I think, um, I mean, I completely forgot to look at WPA numbers for a long time. You know, it's a very old 2011, I guess, I mean, 2004, five, I guess and um, it doesn't cover the service sector so it has its own limitations so and in any case uh, we have adopted cpa as a policy anchor right i think um, so there are little disagreement on that but otherwise um, i mean we have we have been talking about this divergence for a long time and overall i must say that um, i certainly learned a lot today and um, I would like to thank uh, Impri for giving me this opportunity to chair this very interesting uh, discussion. So thank you so much and uh, over to Arjun. Thank you, thank you so much, sir. So to officially propose a vote of thanks, now I invite Dr. Sinemeta, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it has really been very enriching. And as we stand together in unity and in solidarity of a strong and resilient Indian economy, this deliberation has truly been very uh, insightful. And uh, it has very richly contributed to uh, the you know, policy and structural measures that need to be undertaken by the government. So 
I would like to uh, formally propose the vote of thanks on behalf of the IMPRI Center for the Study of Finance and Economics to our distinguished speaker, Dr. Renu Kohli, and to our distinguished discussants, uh, Dr. Radhika Pandey, Dr. J. Dennis Rajakumar, and to Mr. T.K. Arun. And uh, thank you so much for adding to the discussion. I would also like to thank uh, Professor N.R. Bhanumurthy for agreeing to chair the session. So thank you. Uh, it has you have really added to the uh, intellectually informed discussion that has taken place today. And lastly, my deepest gratitude to all the uh, participants uh, here on Zoom and also on Facebook Live and to all those who will be watching us later on our YouTube channel um, and listening to the podcast on different platforms. So thank you so much. And we look forward to continuing to learn from you. Uh, wish you all a very, very good day and please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.